Good day. Welcome to another episode of the Audible Local Ledger Reads to the Blind podcast. You can get more information at audiblelocalledger.org. Stay tuned for today's reading. Hello. Today is Thursday, February the 1st, and I'm Daphne and glad to be reading to you the Cape Cod Times. We start with the weather. Today, high of 44, periods of clouds and sunshine. Tonight, rather cloudy with a stray shower, low of 37. Tomorrow, Friday, high of 41, low of 30, a morning shower, cloudy and breezy. For the weekend, Saturday, high of 36, low of 25, sunshine and patchy clouds. Sunday, high of 39, low of 26, some clouds, then sunshine. And Monday, high of 33, low of 26, colder with times of clouds and sun. And speaking of sun, we have passed a threshold. The sun, the sun rose at 6.54 this morning. It will set at 4.56 p.m. this afternoon, which gives us 10 hours and 2 minutes of sunshine today. And on to the lottery. We begin with the numbers game, drawn yesterday, Wednesday, the 31st of January. The midday drawing was 6083. Again, numbers game yesterday, midday drawing, 6083. And the evening drawing for the numbers game, numbers were 3, 5, 4, and 1. Again, for the evening, for the numbers games, Game three, five, four, one. For Powerball, also drawn yesterday, Wednesday, January the 31st, the numbers are 15, 18, 19, 41, 43, and the Powerball is 14. Again, Powerball drawn yesterday, January 31st, the numbers are 15, 18, 19, 41, 43, and 14. <clears throat> for Lucky for Life, drawn on Wednesday, January 31st, the numbers are 2, 28, 38, 43, 46, and the lucky ball is 1. Again, Lucky for Life, the numbers are 2, 28, 38, 43 and 46 with the lucky ball of 1. For mass cash, the numbers are 6, 14, 22, 30, 33. Again, mass cash drawn yesterday, Wednesday, the 31st of January. The numbers are 6, 14, 22, 30, and 33. For Mega Millions, drawn on Tuesday, January the 30th, the numbers are 3, 5, 16, 58, 59, with the Mega Ball of 11. Again, Mega Millions, drawn Tuesday the 30th, the numbers are 3, 5, 16, 58, 59, with the Mega Ball of 11. And Mega Bucks, drawn yesterday, the 31st, the numbers are 5, 8, 18, 30, 
3435. Now on to the news. Our front page story for February the 1st in the Cape Cod Times. It has a photograph uh, of um, traffic and the picture is taken at night so all the lights uh, make these sort of colored streams and the caption is northbound traffic blurs into motion in the late afternoon along Route 132 on Tuesday. The northbound side of the road does not have a sidewalk. The town is studying ways to make the heavily, heavily traveled highway safer. And the title of this article is It's Due for an Upgrade, and it's reported by Walker Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. Planned improvements to Route 132, Yano Road in Hyannis, are designed to improve bicycle and pedestrian access and overall traffic safety, Barnstable town officials said at a public meeting on Monday. The project, expected to begin in the next five to ten years, will focus on the roadway between Beers's Way and the airport rotary, but will not include the rotary itself. The road will be widened to accommodate bicyclists and pedestrians, and the center median will be extended all the way to the rotary. The upgrades are designed to reduce congestion on the thoroughfare, which is recognized as a e central economic hub for the Cape region. Quote, there's no modern bicycle infrastructure. The road was built with vehicles in mind, and there are a lot of better standards for that today that exist, said Stephen Rhodes, project manager for Fanasse Hangen Bruslin Incorporated, the engineering firm overseeing the project. Other changes will be made to the shoulders of the road to better accommodate emergency vehicles and storm drainage, improving traffic move movement in and out of businesses along Route 132 Iano Road, updating street lighting, and installing crosswalks at various intervals, Rhodes said. A road survey will guide the design, Rhodes said, adding that the timeline has yet to be finalized for the survey and the design phase. Bids, bids for construction have not yet been issued. The project is eligible for state and federal funding through the State Transportation Improvement Program, and Barnstable Town Engineer Griffin Bedoin said no local tax dollars are being spent yet. Quote, the current design is being funded by the Cape Cod Commission Development of Regional Impact Mitigation Funds, Bedoin said. So it's actually being funded from mitigation funds that go into a pool for the community when developments of regional impact come into the community, close quote. The airport rotary is state-owned, as opposed to Route 132, Iano Road, which is owned by the town of Barnstable, Bodoin said. The Massachusetts Department of Transportation is actively planning a project to retrofit and improve the rotary, but he said a schedule for that work has not been established. Route 132, Iana Road, was resurfaced two years ago as an interim solution while the bigger project is in the initial stages, Bodoin said. Total reconstruction is necessary to ensure the safety and stability of traffic flow, he said. Quote, it's been a while, and it's Route 132, Iana Road, due for an upgrade, he said. 
It really doesn't meet the modern standards of a complete roadway these days, close quote. It is entitled, Dead Whale on Vineyard Will Be Examined. And this is reported by Heather McCarran. Discovery of a deceased female North Atlantic right whale near Joseph Sylvia State Beach on Martha's Vineyard has set off a response from marine veterinarians and biologists looking for clues about how the whale died. A team from the International Fund for Animal Welfare, headquartered in Yarmouthport, was deployed to the site on Monday and was at work again Tuesday to determine next steps, reported Brian Sharp, director of Marine Mammal Rescue for the nonprofit. It got reported to us and NOAA Fisheries Sunday night just before sunset, Sharp said. The whale was found just south of the barrier beach that stretches for about two miles between Oak Bluffs and Edgartown, with Nantucket Sound on one side and the Sankantacket Pond on the other, he said. Handling whale deaths like this one requires a coordinated effort by multiple responders and involves a checklist of steps. According to NOAA, these include everything from sending an initial response team to assess the situation, making arrangements to tow the remains out of the water, securing the animal from tides and possible souvenir hunters, sometimes moving the animal to another site for examination, putting together a team to conduct a necroscopy, and finally deciding the best means of putting the animal to its final rest. The the process can take a few days, and the results from the necropsy may not offer conclusions for a few weeks. In this case, the IFAW team was able to secure the remains of the female whale with the help of the Wampanoag tribe of Gay Head, Aquina. Sharp said the animal was in the surf, so the team used a rope and an anchor set above the high tide line to keep the remains from washing back out into Nantucket Sound, while the team awaited better weather conditions and planned next steps. Usually, the necropsy would be performed on the beach, where remains wash up. But the stretch of shore where this whale was found, Sharp said, is very narrow and offers no space to maneuver the remains or for the scientists to work. So other plans need to be made. Thought to be a juvenile because of her size, the whale is about 27 to 30 feet, which Sharp said is a a little bit shorter than a school bus. She weighs an estimated 11 tons. It requires heavy equipment to move the animal, and we're trying to source an excavator and front-end loaders, he said. Since they can't get the heavy equipment onto the beach, the team will need to rig up a line to tow the carcass farther ashore before loading it to transport to another location for the necropsy, where the remains will be taken had yet to be determined. We're working with municipalities and different government officials over there to find a location, he said. Once the whale is to a new spot, a necropsy will be done. The necropsy, described by NOAA as, quote, the examination of the dead body or carcass of an animal similar to an autopsy conducted on humans, 
close quote, will be a more in-depth investigation into the whale's condition at time of death and possible causes of death. A number of people are needed to undertake whale necropsies. Sharp expects this team will include 22 to 25 people, including members of the IFAW team and local and regional responders. According to NOAA, necropsy teams take measurements and collect biological samples from many parts of the animal, which typically include skin, blubber, muscle, baleen, and internal organs. They will look for signs of disease or trauma and try to determine the overall health of the animal at the time of death. The leading causes for death of, for right whales are entanglements in traditional fishing gear and injuries caused by vessel strikes, although other causes are also possible. Sharp said this whale had some rope wrapped around its peduncle, which is where the tail flukes connect to the body, but that is not enough to determine cause of death. Once the necropsy is done, the team determines the best way to handle the remains. If a body can be left on the beach to decay on its own, it will be, but on beaches frequented by the public, the body is buried. The responders in this case will need to find a place to bury the whale's remains, whether it be at the location where the necropsy takes place or on a beach other than the one where the whale was found, since there is no room there. Scientists estimate only about 356, plus or minus 7, of the critically endangered North Atlantic right whales are alive today, and relative, relatively few of them are reproductively able females, according to the latest population study released last fall. With a population that small, every animal is a devastating loss, and even more significant when it's a female. Getting these calls of a dead animal like this on our hotline is like a punch to the gut, Sharp said. Just as difficult is coming face to face with it as a responder, he said. Quote, but we have a job to do as veterinarians and biologists to find out what the cause of death was, close quote, and provide that information to government agencies so, hopefully, something can be done about preventable deaths. News of this whale's death is making waves in scientific and con conservation communities, made all that much more discouraging, coming on the heels of news last week of a newborn calf suffering severe injuries from an apparent boat strike off the coast of South Carolina. If the calf is unable to nurse, it will not survive, though as of January the 26th, it was reported to be alive. Quote, this has been a tragic month for North Atlantic right whales, close quote, said Philip Hamilton, senior scientist in the Anderson Cabot Center for Ocean Life at the New England Aquarium on Tuesday, citing the calf's injury and the juvenile female's death. Quote, the time to implement bold protections to protect this critically endangered species from human-caused impacts is now if we are to avoid extinction, he said. Scientists with the New England Aquarium are working with responding agencies, which also include Woods Hole Oceanographic Institution and the Massachusetts Environmental Police, to provide support in identifying and providing the life history of the deceased whale, according to the aquarium. 
The next article from the front page of the Cape Cod Times on February the 1st is entitled, Yarmouth Port Woman Goes on Wheel of Fortune. And this is reported by Jeanette Hinkle for the Cape Cod Times. Natasha Cash works a later shift at the dental office on Mondays. So she was just walking in the door when the Wheel of Fortune came on at 7 p.m. After a year-long application process and a whirlwind December trip to Sony Studios in Los Angeles, Cash was on the small screen, a contestant on one of national television's most beloved game shows, standing under the hot television lights, feet from Pat Sajak and Vanna White. For Cash, who serves as the vice chair of the Mashpee Wampanoag Tribes Enrollment Committee, being on Wheel of Fortune was a lifelong dream. As a, kid's, as a kid, the Yarmouth Port resident would tell friends she'd been a contestant, though it wasn't true. She loved solving the show's word puzzles, in which contestants guessed letter by letter, winning and losing money and prizes along the way based on spins of the massive carnival wheel for which the show is named. And she was good at it. Quote, I'd kill it on the couch every night, literally dusting everyone in my family, said Cash. It was my dream my whole life to be on the show. Cash decided to apply to be a Wheel of Fortune contestant after seeing a TV commercial after work last February. Quote, it said, if you want to be a contestant, just go to wheeloffortune.com. Cash remembered. I'm like, oh, there's a wheeloffortune.com? Close quote. She filled out a form and fired off an application video she recorded while still in her scrubs. In July, Josh uh, Cash got an email saying she'd been chosen to audition for the show. After completing more paperwork and participating in two mock Wheel of Fortune shows via Zoom, she waited for the producers to, saw, to decide if she'd make the cut. Cash said friends and family would describe her as quiet and somewhat reserved. Auditioning for the show took Cash outside of her comfort zone. But she adapted quickly, quote, it's so much easier to do that in front of complete strangers than it is the people in your hometown, she said. In early December, Cash learned she'd been chosen as a contestant and the experience of a lifetime began. She and her husband flew to Los Angeles on December the 14th. They got to the hotel around 2 a.m., giving Cash only hours before she was scheduled to be on Wheel of Fortune, the Wheel of Fortune set at 6 o'clock the next morning. Sony Studios itself was insane, like insane, Cash gushed. Quote, I would have gone to L.A. just for that. Oprah films there. They film movies there. Everything you can name. Close quote. The contestants... 18 of 22 of whom would make it on TV, spent the morning preparing for their big moment. Show producers went over past contestants' mistakes and gave TV tips, advising contestants to speak loudly and use as few words as possible to keep the show moving. The advice was hard to remember under the bright lights at showtime, Cash said. Quote, you just zone out when you're up there, Cash laughed. I forgot everything. Close quote. Cash said contestants didn't recognize Vanna White, who strolled into the studio to greet everyone before the show until they heard her voice. Quote, she is so sweet, Cash said. 
She was dressed down, just came from jogging, hair in a bun. She just commanded the audience immediately, just upon speaking into the mic. It was so amazing, close quote. Perhaps the most overwhelming moment, though, was seeing the Wheel of Fortune set for the first time in real life. The colors of the set Cash knows so well were somehow brighter, more vibrant, she said. Quote, when you really walk in that room and see the wheel and see the actual board, it's like, oh, my God, I don't even have a word for the experience, Cash said. Everyone keeps asking me that, and I cannot even come up with the words to describe what it was like. And every single one of us felt the same way. All 22 of us were like, oh, my God, we are really here right now for real on Wheel of Fortune. There's the wheel right there. There's a little bonus wheel right over there. There's the brand new car right over there. It was crazy, close quote. After contestants were sorted into groups of three ahead of the show, Cash learned she would be one among the first contestants on stage that day. Cash would be competing against one contestant she'd befriended and one whose lightning-fast guesses drew attention at practice all morning. When the cameras started rolling, Cash made the cape proud, racking up nearly $6,000 on top of the expenses provided by the show. Quote, the money means nothing to me, Cash said. Of course, I would have loved to make it to the bonus round. I knew exactly what letters and category I was going to pick, and I knew the answer to the bonus round within a second. But it's just the experience. Money comes and goes, but to have that experience, I've been telling every single person since I got back. Close quote. Cash has also been telling friends and family to the, apply to the show themselves. Quote, you have to do it. Cash said, you'd be crazy not to feel those emotions and have that experience and just everything that comes with that. You'd be crazy not to do it. It was amazing. I can compare it to nothing better in my life. Close quote. Our final story from the front page of the Cape Cod Times is titled, Nickerson Criticizes Moran for Lack of Experience. And this is reported by Walker Armstrong for the Cape Cod Times. As Republican Barnstable County Superior Court Clerk Scott Nickerson announced Tuesday he will not seek re-election, he tweaked to the candidate who wants to replace him, State Senator Susan Moran, Democrat of Falmouth. Nickerson said Moran has never done a criminal case in Barnstable County Superior Court and has only worked three to four civil cases there. He said he thinks Moran's lack of Superior Court experience is problematic. Quote, I hope that someone comes up to run against her. I just don't think that she's qualified for this job, he said. It's very important for this job that you have someone who's knowledgeable in the Superior Court and has a lot of experience dealing and working in the Superior Court. It's all about qualifications and experience, close quote. In November, Moran announced her intention to run for the clerk's job. She previously worked as a trial attorney, served as chair of the Falmouth Select Board, chair of the Barnstable County Economic Development Committee, and as deputy speaker of the Assembly of Delegates. She was first elected to the state Senate in May 2020. Quote, I believe my experience makes me uniquely qualified for Barnstable County Clerk of Courts, Moran said in a written statement Wednesday. I have ideas for necessary modernizations so that the office is more accessible to the residents of Barnstable County, close quote. 
She said her campaign has received support from folks all over the Cape, including Barnstable County Sheriff Donna Buckley, Cape and Islands District Attorney Rob Galliboy, Senator Julian Sear, Democrat from Truro, and Representatives Sarah Peek, Dylan Fernandez, and Chris Flanagan. Quote, Scott Nickerson served the people of Barnstable County for over two decades. I thank him for that commitment and wish him the best in retirement, Moran said. I was very excited to announce my run for clerk of courts at the end of November, as I have been preparing for this role my entire professional life, close quote. Nickerson said his decision not to run is based on reasons regarding his, quote, personal well-being and that of my family, close quote. In November, Nickerson told the Times he would seek re-election. On Wednesday, however, he said running in a race that is now contested by another candidate would be stressful, and he did not feel right taking that on. Quote, this is going to be a very tough campaign, and I can't put myself through that, Nickerson said. That's the main thing that has changed, close quote. Nickerson has served as clerk since 2000 when he ran against then-clerk Phyllis Day, according to the website of the Secretary of State. He has faced no challengers since. Before being elected clerk, Nickerson practiced law in Falmouth and served as an assistant Cape and Islands district attorney. Quote, my health is most important, and so is my family, so I had to make a decision, and I'm okay with that, he said. It's been a pleasure to be here for 24 years, and I'm grateful for that, close quote. The decision was not an easy one, Nickerson said. He said he's proud of the work he's done in his two-decade-long tenure, and it was ultimately the right decision to not seek re-election. Cape and Island's D.A. Galibois said Nickerson, quote, did the best that his skills allowed during his tenure. I congratulate Clerk Nickerson on his 24-year tenure as a Superior Court clerk, and I wish him ongoing good health and success in his retirement, he said. Galibois said Moran is a believer in government transparency and acts out of professionalism and sincerity. In his tenure, Nickerson said he computerized the office, made updates to the court's criminal defendant holding infrastructure, helped set up a system to aid self-representing litigants, and has worked to implement internship programs for Barnstable and Dennis Yarmouth high school students who may have an interest in law. Quote, I had a great staff. We worked very hard, and that's something I'm very proud of, he said. I'm very happy, and I think I will be leaving the office in a very good place. Close quote. More Cape and Island news. This article is entitled Drive Through for Newburger Restaurant Denied by Town Board, reported by Zane Razak for the Cape Cod Times. There's a photograph here of an old Santander Bank building at 715 West Main Street in Hyannis, and this is the location of the proposal. This article is entitled Drive-Through for New Burger Restaurant Denied by Town Board. And there's a photograph here showing the old Santander Bank building at 715 West Main Street in Hyannis. This article is reported by Zane Rasak for the Cape Cod Times. 
Plans for a proposed Wendy's restaurant hit a hurdle last week when the Barnstable Zoning Board of Appeals did not approve a special permit for a drive-thru. Property owner Arista Hyannis, LLC, wants to remodel an old Santander Bank building at 715 West Main Street in Hyannis within the existing footprint into a restaurant. The primary request before the board was whether the remodel could include a drive through according to an attorney for the property owner. On January 24th, the board unanimously denied the permit. For zoning board member Emmanuel Alves, it was difficult to overlook the site's location at the intersection of Pine and West Main Streets across from the Barnstable High School and public concerns about traffic and safety. Quote, the major distinguishing factor of this property is the fact that it sits across from a major school. I can't get over that, said Alves. In a presentation to the board, Randy Hart, with engineering firm Vanessa Hangen Breslin Incorporated, pointed to key findings from environmental partners that said there is no there is quote no substantial difference in traffic operations between Wendy's with a drive-through window or without a drive-through window. Close quote. Quote, based on the projections, there really isn't a substantial difference between the two, said Hart. Environmental Partners was hired by the town to review all aspects of traffic work. It was not enough to alleviate concerns from the board, town officials, and the public. When reading a staff report about unfavorable findings, board member Mark Hansen said the change would be unsuitable for the area because of the, quote, introduction of an auto-dominated fast food use into an existing high-volume roadway network, close quote. Arista Hyannis, LLC, bought the property in July 2022 from Santander Bank for $1.3 million, according to a deed with the Barnstable County Registry of Deeds. The parcel is in the Highway Business District. Attorney Eliza Cox of Nutter McClellan and Fish, representing Arista Hyannis, said the project was only before the zoning board to try to secure approval for the drive through drive throughs are allowed in the Highway Business District as a conditional use by special permit, said Cox, while the use of the site as a Wendy's restaurant is allowed as a right and needs no zoning relief. Cox did not immediately respond to a request for comment. The current building already has a drive through Fashion Food, LLC, is planned to be the franchisee and operator of the proposed Wendy's. We've reached the middle of our broadcast, so it's time for the obituaries. Richard Allen Barry Jones. Richard Allen Barry Jones, 64, of Rogers, Arkansas, suddenly and unexpectedly departed this life on January 13, 2024. He was born on May 5, 1959, in Arlington, Massachusetts. Rick is survived by his parents, Frederick Hall Jones and Ann Dolores Ferguson, and his wife, Laura Jones, married for 37 years. His son, Mark Jones, daughter-in-law, Natalie Jones, sister, Joanne Getchell, and niece, Zoe Getchell. He loved searching for rare antiques and artifacts. He was considered the modern-day Indiana Jones. 
In particular, he had a passion for early colonial American history and the American Revolution. Rick was also a talented musician and enjoyed playing the guitar and singing. He loved making his family and friends laugh from his quirky jokes and lighthearted personality. Rick graduated from Westford Academy High School in Massachusetts. He attended college at both New Hampshire College and California State Polytechnic University in Pomona, where he graduated with a bachelor's degree. He worked in the software tech industry for over 35 years. A celebration of life will be held at Dennis Highlands Golf Course in Dennis, Massachusetts, on Sunday, February the 4th, 2024, from 12 to 3 p.m. Internment will be at Woodside Cemetery in Yarmouthport, Massachusetts. In lieu of flowers, please consider donating to the Dennis Conservation Land Trust, https colon slash slash Dennis Conservation Land Trust, Dot org, and Dennis Conservation Land Trust is all one word, or to the MSPCA of Cape Cod, https colon slash slash www.mspca.org slash adoption dash centers slash Cape Cod Cape slash Cape dash Cod dash adoption dash center backslash. The next obituary is for Antoinette L. Allegretti. Antoinette Allegretti, formerly of Katona, New York, passed away on January 24, 2024. She was born in Brooklyn, New York, on February 2, 1936, and lived in Katona for almost 50 years. She graduated from St. Francis Xavier Academy and went on to earn her B.A. in education at Fordham University. Anne worked as a teacher at PS1 in Manhattan, and after raising her family, was a receptionist at the Mount Kisco Medical Group for over 10 years. She was well known for her style, sense of humor, quick wit, wonderful cooking skills, artistic prowess, and enormous love of family and friends. She and her husband, Enzo, traveled extensively in retirement and enjoyed many years living on Cape Cod in Brewster, Massachusetts, where they loved hosting family and friends. It was a great joy for her to be surrounded by her grandchildren every summer when they attended sea camp on the Cape. She is survived by her husband of 63 years, Enzo, her daughters, Regina Allegretti Davenport, husband Jonathan Davenport of Katona, New York, and Goya Allegretti, husband John Reister, of Palo Alto, California, and her grandchildren, Allegra, William, and Isabel, and her brother, John Barbieri, and his wife, Angela. Anne's family received friends and family on Wednesday, January the 31st, 2024, from 3 p.m. to 7 p.m. at Clark Associates Funeral Home in Katona, New York. Burial was at the Gate of Heaven Cemetery in Hawthorne on Thursday, February the 1st, 2021. As her love of family and children was enormous, memorial donations would be welcomed to a children, children's hospital charity of choice. And for international news, this article is entitled, U.S. May Recognize Palestinian State. 
This is recorded uh, reported by John Bacon of USA Today. And there is a photograph, black and white, that the caption reads, On Wednesday, a man walks out of an installation in Tel Aviv, Israel, simulating a tunnel in Gaza, Gaza as an act of solidarity with hostages held by Hamas. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken asked staffers to review options on possible U.S. and international recognition of a Palestinian state after the war in Gaza, two officials briefed on the issue told Axios. Blinken also asked to review on how a demilitarized Palestinian state might function, the official said. The Israeli website Walla published a similar report. Such a review could increase the pressure on Israel to conclude or ease its military operation in Gaza. Some Biden administration officials now believe recognition of a Palestinian state might be the first step rather than the last step in resolving the long-term Israeli-Palestinian conflict, Axios reports. U.S. policy has long been that recognition of a Palestinian state must come through negotiations between the parties rather than through unilateral recognition. But Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu has shown no interest in signing off on any deal that creates a Palestinian state. The report comes a day after British Foreign Secretary David Cameron said the United Kingdom might be willing to provide formal diplomatic recognition to a Palestinian state prior to a final peace deal. An Iraq-based, Iran-backed militant group suspected of participating in the drone strike that killed three U.S. soldiers in Jordan announced Tuesday it was suspending attacks on U.S. military installations in Iraq and Syria. Abu Hussein al-Hamadawi, Kataib Hezbollah's secretary general, said the militia's fighters would adopt a, quote, temporary passive defense and warned against hostile American action, close quote. President Joe Biden said Tuesday that he had decided on a military response to the attack but provided no details. Iran has denied involvement in the Jordan attack, saying Tehran was not privy to military decisions made by the regional resistance groups. Hossein Salmi, chief of the Iranian Revolutionary Guards, warned that any military action targeting Iran would draw a response. Quote, We hear threats coming from American officials. We tell them that they have already tested us, and we now know one another, he said, according to Iran's Tasnim news agency. No threat will be left unanswered, close quote. The Pentagon's response to the drone attack will likely, likely involve airstrikes, sea-launched missiles, and raids targeting leadership of the Iran-backed militias who have mounted more than 200 assaults on U.S. troops and commercial shipping across the Middle East, current and former officials said. The goal will be to erode the militants' ability to attack, punish their leadership, and beef up defenses in the region to protect the thousands of American forces there, the officials said. Quote, I don't expect a, lar- a U.S. large response, meaning a large-scale ground war, said retired Army Major General Mark Quantock, who served as Chief of Intelligence for U.S. Central Command. 
Quote, but I do expect Iran and its surrogates will feel the hot sting of American power. Close quote. The Treasury Department's offer of foreign assets control announced sanctions blocking financial traction, transactions for three entities and an individual accused of providing, quote, critical financial support to an Iranian Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, Quds Force, and Hezbollah. The sanction targets generated hundreds of millions of dollars worth of revenue from selling Iranian commodities, the office said. Turkey-based Mira Ithrakat Ithalat Petrol and its owner, Ibrahim Talal al-Uwar, are among the sanctioned targets. Also sanctioned were two Lebanon-based companies, Yara Offshore SAL and Hydro Company for Drilling Equipment Rental. Gaza's health ministry said Wednesday that 150 people had been killed in the territory in the previous 24 hours and another 313 were wounded as Israel force, Israeli forces continued to battle militants. The latest fatalities bring the Palestinian death toll from Israeli's offensive to 26,900, according to the Hamas-controlled health ministry. It does not distinguish between civilian and combatant deaths, but says most of those killed were women and children. Hamas's October 7th attack in southern Israel that sparked the war killed 1,200 people, mostly civilians, and about 250 people were taken hostage, according to Israeli authorities. Israel says 109 hostages remain in militant captivity and that Hamas has the bodies of 27 people. Under a proposal crafted by the U.S., Qatar, and Egypt, all civilian hostages being held by Hamas inside Gaza would be released during a six-week pause in fighting, the Washington Post reported, citing officials familiar with the negotiations. Parts of the plan have been accepted by Israel, and Hamas is considering it, the Post said. The proposal also would... free three Palestinians now held in Israeli jails for each hostage released. Israeli troops would be temporarily repositioned away from the most densely populated areas of Gaza, and the humanitarian aid pipeline into the enclave would be expanded, the Post says. The Post sources, who requested anonymity, said negotiations were in early stages and any deal would take more time to consummate. At least a dozen employees of the U.N. Palestinian Refugee Agency had ties to the October 7th Hamas attack, and 10% of its 12,000-plus workers in Gaza have ties to militant groups. The Wall Street Journal reported, citing Israeli intelligence report reviewed by the media outlet. The reports claim that two U.N. Relief and Works Agency workers helped kidnap Israel, Israelis, and two others were tracked to sites where scores of Israeli civilians were shot and killed. Others coordinated logistics and helped arm the attackers, the reports say. The information, included in a briefing Israel gave U.S. officials, prompted the Biden administration and several other nations to suspend aid to UNRWA.
And here's a local sports story for girls basketball. Monomoy gets back to 500 with win over JP2. This is reported by Andre Sims. And there are two photographs, three photographs here. Um, one has got Monomoy players come off the court after defeating St. John Paul to 50 to 49 in girls basketball. And another one has Michaela Enright of St. John Paul II and Kylie Mon of Monomoy going to the floor for the ball. The article, Sometimes a team really needs a win. The concept of a must-win game is universal in sports, with teams at all levels understanding the importance one game can have. The Monomoy girls basketball team entered Tuesday night's matchup with St. John Paul II, knowing the importance of that single game. The Sharks entered the game 6-7 to and knew a win over the Lions could change the direction of their season. Quote, this is a win that they needed for their own self-esteem, head coach Craig Andrews said. Quote, a win like this is going to do a lot, close quote. Must-win games almost never come easy, and this one would be no different. Monomoy's opposition were no pushovers. The Lions entered the game winners of six straight games and eight of nine overall. The two teams locked horns and, after regulation, couldn't be separated. When the dust settled, the Sharks, 7-7, seven and seven, celebrated a 50-49 to 49 overtime victory. When the final buzzer sounded, it was obvious how much the win meant to the team because they knew how much it took. Quote, a lot of persevering, Junior Fiona Moore said. We get in our heads a lot, and I think that we were able to build out of that recently, and we've done really well with keeping everyone motivated and positive. Close quote. Winning must-win games requires that players meet the moment. The Sharks got key contributions from up and down the roster, but there were a couple players who stood out in the win. Moore was one. By the time Moore collected an offensive rebound and was fouled, the game was tied at 49, with under 10 seconds remaining. Before the junior could even reach the free-throw line, she was surrounded by teammates. Quote, I think my teammates were able to build up my confidence in the game, and that little huddle, in that little huddle, they recognized that I was able to do that, and we were all in this together, Moore said. Safe to say, she was a little nervous. Crucially, she sunk the first one, which proved to be the winner. Though she sunk the decisive shot, she said it took everyone to get to that moment. Quote, that was terrifying, she said following the game. I've never really been the biggest basketball star, so that was cool to have that moment, but in the end, it was a team effort. Close quote. Still, she found herself in that moment and stepped up. It was a reward for the effort she put in throughout the game. It was her only point of the game, but she finished with nine rebounds and made countless plays that didn't show up in the stat sheet. The same could be said for Susanna Brown, though she filled the stat sheet as well. Her double-double, 14 points, 13 rebounds, helped lead the Sharks to the win. She was involved in many of the good things the Sharks did. After a year away from the basketball team, Brown is happy to have a part to play. Quote, I was coming into a role where I wasn't really sure what I was going to do, but I'm happy that I've been able to come out and contribute, she said. 
whether on the offensive glass, applying full-court press, or sinking two clutch free throws that nearly won the game in regulation, Brown did a little bit of everything. In the bigger picture, the win is only as important as the next one, and the next one after that. At 7-7, seven to seven, they can still reach 10 wins and therefore still control their own playoff destiny. Brown said the team is ready to build off this win. Quote, we know that if we can lock down the first couple of wins, that we'll be okay for the playoffs and hopefully get a home game, she said. Andrews agrees. With the league championship and the playoffs within reach, he knows how valuable this win can be. Quote, this was a huge win for us, Andrews said. In his eye, the win, sh- the win shows a team that has grown this season. As they enter the final stretch of games, he said the biggest difference early in the season and now is one main quality. Quote, we've just been getting better about being disciplined, Andrews said. X's and O's are great, but if you're not disciplined, it doesn't matter. The Lions' 11-4 playoff position is far more secure, but head coach Gus Adams still sees the value in a loss. Quote, I think there's more learning in the losses because it gets their attention for practice, Adams said. Overall, he was happy with how his team played, and he especially highlighted the contributions from players off the bench after three starters fouled out late in the game. He said down the stretch he felt his team got a little uncharacteristic with how they played. Quote, people were trying to win it themselves a little bit too much, Adam said. It may be a sign of youth. The Lions usually start five sophomores, and Adam said even though it may not have ultimately worked, he's proud that his young core feels responsible enough to want to take on that challenge. Quote, I give them credit. They felt responsible, and they wanted to do something about it, Adams said. I'd rather have them do that than shy away and be afraid to take a shot. The Lions are still competing for the league title as well and have their eyes on the postseason. Though this game slipped away, the focus remains on closing the season strong. For some medical news from the Cape Cod Times for February the 1st, this article is entitled Biogen Ditches Embattled Alzheimer's Drug Aduhelm, and this is reported by Ken Altucker for USA Today. Biogen has announced it will give up ownership and halt sales of Aduhelm, an embattled Alzheimer's disease drug that was scrutinized following its 2021 approval. Biogen said it was terminating a licensing agreement with Neuromune, which controls the right to the drug. Aduhelm, which which became the first new Food and Drug Administration-approved drug for the disease since 2003, targets amyloid beta proteins that form in the brains of Alzheimer's patients. The FDA's accelerated approval of the drug in 2021 was seen as problematic by many in the medical community because the agency overruled the advice of expert outside advisors who said clinical trials had failed to prove the drug was effective. Two years before getting approval, Biogen halted its trials earlier because researchers were getting mixed results that suggested the drug did not slow down Alzheimer's progression. Together, Biogen and the FDA began reanalyzing the data and concluding the drug worked, ultimately leading to the FDA's conditional approval. 
Biogen also faces criticism because it was initially charging $56,000 per year for the drug. The Cambridge, Massachusetts company later slashed the price in half, but critics said it was still too expensive for a drug not proven to slow memory and thinking problems. On Wednesday, Biogen said it would also halt a post-approval study of Aduhelm, which the FDA required as a condition of the drug's approval. Biogen said, however, it will continue to study and develop potential Alzheimer's disease treatments. Biogen teamed with Tokyo-based SI last year to gain FDA approval of Lakembi, an amyloid beta-busting drug that slowed Alzheimer's disease progression in clinical studies. SI led development of Lakembi and retains final decision-making authority for the drug. In a statement, Christopher A. Weibacher, president and CEO of Biogen, said the company will reprioritize its Alzheimer's disease resources. Quote, when searching for new medicine, one breakthrough can be the foundation that triggers future medicines to be developed, Weibacher said. Aduhelm was that great groundbreaking discovery that paved the way for a new class of drugs and reinvigorated investments in the field. And our last story is another medical report entitled CDC, Syphilis Cases at Highest Level in Decades, and this is reported by Mike Snyder for USA Today. We start with symptoms of syphilis. Primary stage, you may have one or more sores where the infection entered your body, mouth, sex organs, anus. Secondary stage, you may have skin rashes and or sores in your mouth, vagina, or anus. A rash can be on your hands or feet. You may also have fever and other symptoms. The U.S. has a growing sexual transmitted disease problem. Syphilis cases in 2022 increased to the highest level since 1950, according to a new report released Tuesday by the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. In 2022, a total of 207, 255 cases of syphilis were reported in the U.S., the CDC report says. Total syphilis cases increased 16.9% as the rate of reported cases rose from 52, 53.2 per 100,000 in 2022 to 62.2 per 100,000 in 2022. Especially alarming... Congenital syphilis, which occurs when a pregnant person with syphilis passes the infection on to their baby during pregnancy, increased 30.6% with more than 3,700 cases in 2022. Quote, we have long known that these infections are common, but we have not faced such severe, severe effects of syphilis in decades, close quote, said Dr. Lauren Bachman, acting director of the Division of STD Prevention at the CDC's National Center for HIV, Viral Hepatitis, STD, and TB Prevention, in a statement accompanying the report. Quote, it has emerged as a unique public health challenge, close quote. The report did reveal some good news. While chlamydia and gonorrhea account for more cases than syphilis, and syphilis is considered more dangerous. The rates of infection of those sexually transmitted diseases fell or held steady. Cases of the most common STD, chlamydia, 
remained the same in 2022, with 1.6 million cases, amounting to 495 cases per 100,000 persons, similar to the rate in 2021 of 495.5 per 100,000 in 2021. Chlamydia did increase 1.8% among men, while it declined 1.8% among women, the CDC said. Gonorrhea declined for the first time since 2009. Total cases fell 9.2% in 2022 to about 648,000 cases. The largest decline came among women, down 14.5%, according to the report. Adolescents and young adults, ranged 15 to 24, accounted for half, 49.8%, of reported cases of chlamydia, gonorrhea, and syphilis, syphilis, the CDC found. Gay and bisexual men were also more likely to have reported STDs. About 59,000 cases, or 28% of syphilis cases in 2022, were the infectious forms of syphilis, and about a quarter were reported by women, and nearly another one-fourth were reported by heterosexual men. Quote, I think it's unknowingly being spread in the cisgender heterosexual population because we really aren't testing for it. We really aren't looking for it, close quote, in that population, said Dr. Philip Chan, who teaches at Brown University and is chief medical officer of Open Door Health, a health center for gay, lesbian, and transgender patients in Providence, Rhode Island. An STD that can be treated with antibiotics, syphilis untreated, can eventually affect the brain and nervous system and even lead to dementia, blindness, tinnitus, and in some cases, death. Since hitting a low in 2000 and 2001, the rate of the most infectious forms of syphilis, primary and secondary stage syphilis, have increased almost annually and rising 9.3% from 2021 to 2022, the CDC says. Rates of the most infectious forms of syphilis increased upon men and women among all age groups, and in all regions of the U.S., the CDC says. Infectious rates also rose in most racial Hispanic ethnicity groups, with the largest increases among non-Hispanic American Indian slash Alaska Native persons. And that's all we have time for today. This is Daphne. I've been glad to be reading the Cape Cod Times for Thursday, February the 1st, and I hope you have a great weekend.